Welcome to Biblical Perspectives on Aging, the podcast where you and your church will find answers to the difficult questions that arise as we grow older. On behalf of the Baptist Home, this is your host, Dr. Andy Brames. Dr. Elmer Towns has joined us today on this podcast. Dr. Towns, many of our listeners may be familiar with you, uh, but for those who are not, could you please introduce yourself? Let us know a little bit about where you serve, a little bit of of your life history, if you would, please. Well, first of all, in a couple of weeks, I'll be 88 years old. I love the Lord, and um, 49 years ago, I helped Jerry start Liberty University. Uh, I had been a college president in Canada. Matter of fact, when I was 27 years old, the youngest Bible college president of the oldest college, Bible college in Canada, and I learned something in that Bible college experience that was interdenominational. I worked hard. I worked very hard. I couldn't get that little old college past 86 pupils. 86, that's all. I started with 42, and I more than double, and I came away saying, you know, If I ever start a college again, I'm going to do two or three things differently. I'm going to make the college a church. God's plan is with the church primarily. I am a Baptist. I'm a committed Baptist. And the church is God's plan. So I said, I'm going to make every student work in the college. And so we came to Liberty. I said, Jerry, Thomas Road Baptist Church and Liberty University will be the same as far as the life of the students. Every student will be a member of the church, will attend Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, will work in the church, Christian and service, and we'll get the vision. The vision of the church will become their vision. What we're doing is what they will do. And therefore, the best way to teach people is by example. And we did that by Thomas Road Baptist Church. Well, God is blessed. Today, we have over 100,000 students. Our budget is $1 billion a year. I retired seven years ago, so I am completely out of the running of the school. And I just pass those figures on to you. God has done an amazing thing here at Liberty. Mm. Of all that we have in ministry, I can't tell you how many we have in ministry today, how many have planted big churches. I'm thinking, I'm thinking students out there with churches of three, four, five, and 7,000 in attendance. And so we praise God for what he's done. Well, you certainly have influenced the lives of countless students, countless ministers, and through them, obviously, the lives of so many others as well. Dr. Towns, you and senior adults in general, uh, which is really the, the focus of this podcast, have so much to give to many younger generations. And you have served as a mentor to people like Dr. Harrison, who's currently serving as the president of the Baptist Home, uh, others who are very well known in their own right, such as John Maxwell. Could you speak to our audience a little bit about the importance of mentoring in general and what it has meant to you? I think started with me back in my first year at Dallas Theological Seminary in 1954. Now, I got involved with the Navigators, and 2 Timothy 2.2 became very important to us. The things you have seen, you have received among many witnesses, among faithful men, pass on to other people. And so I got involved in trying to influence other people's lives, even when I was a freshman in seminary, trying to influence the lives of other people in the church, wherever I could go. So I think mentoring is discipleship. And so basically it's applying what the Bible teaches about discipleship in 2 Timothy 2.2 onto other people. 
So that's basically what mentoring is. Yes, John Maxwell, I, I met many years ago, and um, it's a very interesting situation. I was called to Iowa. I was going to go preach at a church, and it was a church that has grown from nothing to over a thousand. This huge, this huge number of people. Well, anyway, the pastor uh, moved out of town, out in the country. He built an auditorium that will seat 1,400 for his 1,000 people. And he had, uh, Robert Shuler came, was the first day, Wednesday and uh, Thursday, Wednesday and Thursday morning. And so as I was getting off the plane, he got on the plane. He said, go back, Elmer. This place <laughs> is terrible. It's dead. Go home. Let's go. Let's, let's go back. I said, no, I got to get on a preach. And so I showed up and come to find out the church only had about 100 adults. It had a thousand on bus ministry. Mm. And so the church had about a hundred there on Sunday morning, but all the bus kids were elsewhere. So you got a 1400-seat auditorium with a hundred people in it. And so I was going to teach the pastor. There were 30 pastors there. And I was told there were going to be hundreds of pastors, well, there were 30. <laughs> and so I taught these 30 pastors what I taught. And then I went back to town. I went to the Howard Johnson Motel. And I looked across the restaurant, I saw this young kid over there, long, long-haired hippie kid, I called him. It was John Maxwell. <laughs> and he was uh, in his early 20s, he had a church. And I said, aren't you one of the pastors? Come sit with me, John. He came over, sat down, and he said, this is, he said, I can't even eat. I said, oh, come on, this doesn't eat. And then I said, I'll tell you what, if you don't like this conference, go change your plane reservation and travel with me back to Chicago. I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to introduce you to three of the biggest pastors in the world that will change your life. And um, one was Jack Hiles, and one was John R. Rice. Jack Hiles, of course, at that time had the huge church, First Baptist Church at Hammond. John R. Rice had the editor. He was the sword of the Lord. And the other was Lee Robertson, uh, the, the first and second largest church in America. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, John, you know, went, changed his prayer, went with me, and I took him, and I spent that whole day talking with him. Hmm. And what I was trying to do is give him a vision of what God could do through him. And so we've been friends ever since that. And then he said, come to my church. He said, I want you to come and uh, preach for me. And I came and preached for him, and I did a pastor conference for him. And I said, now, take these things that you're learning and take these things that I'm teaching and you teach them to other people. So that's, that's my mentoring role with John Maxwell. We've been friends. We've had vacations together in Japan, vacations together in Europe. We've, we've had vacations together. We've been to the Masters Golf Tournament and Myrtle Beach and every other place you can imagine. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, obviously your impact on him uh, has allowed him to impact many around the world as well. What are you, what do you believe Dr. Towns are some of the key lessons that senior adults can share with younger generations? Some of those key principles that need to be passed on. I have three children. My son who is the middle is with the Lord. He passed away in an automobile accident. Um, I have 10 grandchildren, and I have seven great-grandchildren, and three of those great-grandchildren are, one is married, the other two are married age, and so very shortly I can be a great-great-grandfather. Hmm. 
And so I look, I said, uh, what, what do I want to be for these? I want you to know, first of all, prayer. I pray for every one of my grandchildren every day. I hold them up before God. I pray, number one, God, deliver them, keep them from temptation and trials from Satan. And then I pray for God to, to show himself to them and to use them and give them a passion to go to church and serve God in the church. And so I pray for all my, my, my grandchildren and children every day. So I, I love that. So I would say to be a mentor, you have to share your life. The things that God has taught you, you have to teach to them and then uh, encourage them to use it with other people because they haven't really learned it until they use what you're passing on to them. That's great, great words, sir. Thank you very much. Well, the two things that you just shared, I think, are a part of this. But if someone had never considered mentoring others before, is there some way, especially even later at a later age in life, is there something that you would encourage that person who is thinking, well, I might be able to mentor, but I really don't know how to start? What, what might that person do to be able to pass on some of their thoughts and values? I think, first of all, realize that you are, you are an example. And you have to say, what do I have that I can pass on? What are my strengths that I can communicate? What can I give to another person? And so you have to ask yourself those hard questions. What can you really pass on? And so I, I know certain things I can pass on to my children. The most important thing is money and time because uh, life is made up of the money you work for and the money you spend and the way you spend your money. So you want to pass on lessons about money. I, I've always, with all of my children and my grandchildren, I have used money as a means of teaching. Now, I talk about my grandchildren. Uh, when they first come along, I give them money in a savings account. That was originally. Now I give them stock. <laughs> I have a brand new granddaughter, and uh, Hannah. And so I went out. And I really like this young girl. And so I gave her $1,000 in stock options. And so I gave those to her. And so I, I give it to, I said, now, you have to use these. And um, when, I said, well, when I do it, I buy it, but I keep it. But when they turn of age, I give it to them. Mm. I have this one example. I think money is important. So I had a grandson and I bought him $2,500 in stock. And another granddaughter, his sister, I bought her $2,500. And was so interesting. Her stock went down from the time she was born until the time, as soon as 18, she came, I bought my money. So I gave it to her. She went straight to the stockbroker, cashed all the stock in, it was only worth $1,000, and went out and spent it. In a day, she spent it all. Mm. That tells me something about her life and how she looked at life. The boy, uh, his was doubled, just different stock. And so his, he went out, I said, what have you done with it? Nothing. He said, I'm going to keep it until I, I need something. So I've done that. So I've always used with my children. I teach them through money. I told each of my children, I said, when you get to the age 16, you want a car. I'm not going to buy you a car. I'll buy you half a car. Hmm. So you have to start saving your money. And if you save a little bit, you get a lot from me, or we get a little bit from me. If you save a lot, you get a lot from me. So my son, he saved $400. I had $400. He bought an $800 car. And then my next daughter comes along, and uh, she had um, she saved about 
800. And so I put 800 with her. She got a $1,600 car. My last one comes along, it was 1,200, 1,200. So they saved their money. So I, I believe teaching children by money. Now, for many years, I used to teach at Winona Lake Summer School of Theology. Winona Lake is a campground in the middle of Indiana. And in this campground, children can run around all kinds of places to eat and to spend money and do everything. And so every day, every morning, I would give each kid $1. I said, now, don't ask me for snacks. Don't ask me for, I said, you spend your money any way you want to. And it was interesting how my kids spent their money. My oldest daughter, it was gone within 30 minutes. Hmm. And my son at the end of the week had all five dollars. <laughs> so it was interesting. And I, I would teach them from one another what you can learn these lessons you learn. So mentoring is important to teach your children and your grandchildren these lessons. Uh, well, thank you very much for that. Great, great wisdom for me as well. Dr. Towns, I, I want to shift gears now and speak, uh, have you speak about the idea of vitality. When this podcast episode airs, you just mentioned you're almost 88, you'll be 88 years young by then. And I say young because you are still active, you are, you do still serve in various capacities. So <laughs> what are some of the personal keys to the vita vitality that you have, and some practices that you might recommend to somebody like me in my early 50s, to that, that I might have an opportunity to have that vigor and vitality at a later age as well? My mother married my father, who was a heavy drinker, was an alcoholic. And um, as a young, before I, when I was born, we were living on a riverside, a nice riverside house in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, but by the time I started school, his drinking had become so heavy uh, that we lived in a shotgun house, rented at the end of a street, and we didn't have a house with, um, with running water in it, just an old, old shotgun house, if you can imagine. So I grew up poor. And my mother um, said, you know, some things you could learn. And I learned, I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be an alcoholic. I want to be, so I learned uh, not to drink and not to smoke. And I can remember, so my mother took me to Sunday school. And when I was, um, I was in the third grade, my Sunday school teacher was talking to all of us in front of the, the little church, Eastern Heights Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia. And they had a church of about 60 people, small church. And so the Sunday school teacher said, now boys, look up there. And he pointed out two deacons who were smoking and said, don't ever have your first cigarette. Hmm. How come, Jimmy, I asked. He said, man, it's stupid. You should take that cigarette. In those days, when I was young, you could buy a pack of cigarettes for 18 cents. Hmm. There were 18 cigarettes, a penny a piece. And they looked at me and said, you like to burn up money? I said, no, I don't. I said, don't ever have your first cigarette. So I never had my first cigarette. Now, the very next week, uh, these two deacons, there were, there were different deacons out there. He said, boys, those two deacons, they drink. You don't want to drink. I said, come, Jimmy. He said, well, you take that bottle. He said, you can take a bottle and you pay, it costs you like $4 for a quart of whiskey. A lot more than that today. Albert, you like to flush money down? Not me. He said, don't ever have your first drink. <laughs> and he said, okay. So... I've never had my first drink. I've never had my first cigarette. I've always tried to have a healthy attitude towards life. And so I said, you know, I want to be healthy. I want to serve the Lord. And then when I got saved at age 17, I learned my body 
is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. I want my body temple. So I'm 88, but this morning I've already run half mile, mm -hmm. and I go out to the front yard, and I take a golf club, and I play the equivalent of 18 holes in about eight minutes. I don't <laughs> walk it, but I, I swing. I do the drive, I do the chip, and I do the putt. So I do that, and I play the equivalent of 18 holes. I get the exercise, the whole body exercise. I want my body to be a temple for the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's a great word. I, I, I have to ask, since you brought it up, but what, what do you shoot in your front yard? Do you always break par? <laughs> uh, well, I, I never bogey. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You, you know uh, the course. You know the course very well by now, don't you? Well, no. Let me tell you. Uh, I golf has been my exercise over the years, and about um, oh, about eight years ago, I stopped playing golf uh, for score, and I just play golf for exercise nowadays. And so I, I usually play nine holes, and I don't play. I don't keep score. I try to do my best, but I, I know I can't do my best, and so I can't do what I've done before. The lowest score I've ever shot was a 75. Well, I started out one day and I, I part hole and I burned it hole, a part hole, and my buddy said, from now on, he said, settle down. Today you're gonna break an all-time record. First time I ever hit in the 70s. And so I buckled down one day, every shot counted, and I shot a 75. And so I have played, God has been very good to me. I played masters and some of the best courses in the world. Because when you're a preacher, you go, you go to Akron, Ohio, Akron Baptist Temple, and um, the pastor there was living on the 17th hole of the mm. great course up there in Akron. So I played there, that course. I played all the courses of the world. Hmm. What a great privilege for you. That's, yes. that's, that's great. So, well, um, we, we've kind of talked about part of your life and, and, and some important parts, but, but I want to get very personal, if you don't mind, Dr. Towns. Um, you were married for 60 years and uh, your wife was more than a spouse. She was also an educator alongside you. Uh, you. You shared much in your relationship with her. Could you share just generally about your relationship? And then I want to, I want to move in uh, to her end of life and how for this okay. podcast specifically, um, how that affected you. We met at Columbia Bible College. I was praying. I said, God, uh, you know, I want to have a wife. I began to pray about this wife, and so all of a sudden it dawned on me, I ought to have the prettiest, smartest, most spiritual girl on campus. <laughs> and so I kind of looked around, and I saw this girl. Boy, that's the girl everybody wants to date. And so I prayed about, I said, Pray, I'm going to ask her for a date. And so I prayed and prayed and prayed. I even planned it. <laughs> I, I stood in the hall where she was coming down, and I knew what to do. I'd go, let her walk past. I'd go, count one, two, three steps and then Ruth and she turns around. Then before I lost courage, I read and I said, I want to take you out Friday night. How about going in right after supper? Let's go out for dessert. At um, at CC, CC's was a drugstore that they had, you could buy in those days. Um, oh, banana split. Okay. My sense. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, that's okay. Thank you. And I walked away. I said, yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we prayed about it. Um, and then we became friends, and we were friends for about a whole semester. It's going on very well. And then my buddy comes along and says, I think I'm going to date Ruth. I said, oh, no, wait a minute. 
I said, I think this is more than a friend. I think I think I love her. So I prayed about it. And then I on May 8th, 1951, I asked her to go steady. Gave her my high school ring. She gave me hers. And so we went steady, got engaged. And um, so we've been we were married for 60 years. Um, we she never, we never argued, we never fussed, and she was a kind, she was a certain her. Her spiritual gift was helps, hmm. helps and encouragement. And uh, she was the perfect wife to help me in everything I do. She was always supportive of everything I do. Just yesterday, I went back into my old file. I was looking up my, uh, my sophomore year term papers I wrote in philosophy, the philosophy 201 class. And she typed many of these papers for me. And so I was amazed. I, said, I forgot that she typed those papers for me. So she was good in typing the papers. And she was a perfect, perfect wife in every way. She, um, she raised my Christians. And when uh, she was five years old, she said, I want to marry a Christian. So her mother said to her, well, you pray every night. And so she said, I've been praying for you for 15 years before she ever met me. So we have a, a wonderful relationship together. And I was a co-founder of Liberty University, and she has a co-founder's ring that was given to the, the co-founder's teaching at the university. So she has a co-founder's ring there. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, your wife, um, she died several years ago now, and you watched her battle with cancer for a number of years and then hospice at the end of her life. Can you share a little bit about that journey uh, with her over the last few years and even the months of, of her life? Yes, um, it was uh, the Saturday before Labor Day in um, 2013. Uh, I was speaking at a large conference down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I got a phone call. We had to take your mother to the hospital. She had had a previous stroke. and We didn't know what it was. We couldn't find it. And so when I got home, I went to the hospital and she was in the emergency room and the doctor said to us, she has cancer and we don't think she has very long to live. She said, it's advanced cancer. And I remember her saying, we can, we can uh, operate and maybe give her an extra year. She said, no. She said, you're not gonna operate on me. She said, I know where I'm gonna go when I'm dying. I know Jesus and I'm ready to die. But just to operate, I don't want to go through that again. She said, she had one operation. She said, I don't want to do that again. So she said, oh, so she went to hospice. And so, and it was from then, from the day, the Friday before Labor Day, until December the 13th. She died on December the 13th. And I went in to see her every day. And she was uh, not in the hospital, but she was in a, uh, a center where they have hospice patients. And so I'd go in every morning and say every evening. And in the middle day, my daughter would go see her. So um, on that day, I had been there early in the morning, had breakfast with her, and she wouldn't eat. I came back that night, and I tried to give her breakfast, she wouldn't eat, and she loved Wheel of Fortune. Hmm. <laughs> and so I poked, I turned around, I poked up, and so we watched Pat Sajak and Vanna White. You remember, you recognize those guys? Sure, things? sure, absolutely. So we watched them together because she wanted to. And then when it was over, I looked over. I thought, I thought she was not there. I said, Ruth, Ruth, 
eyes were open and nothing was happening. And I, I sat there for about three minutes. I said, matter of fact, I turned this, the, the knob on the television and it popped over to TBN. And there was um, Beverly Shea. It will be, it was singing, it will be worth it all. Hmm. And so I turned over and I listened to Beverly Shea. And then I said, Ruth, and it dawned on me, she died listening to Dev Shea singing hmm. It Will Be With It All. And um, I sat there for about five minutes. I, I just was stunned. What can I do? After five minutes, I, I reached over and touched her, and I realized she was gone. So I went to the nurse's quarter, and it was supper time. They were eating. So they came out, and sure enough, she was gone. They put the sheet over her and called for them to come and get the body. And um, but I remember, I didn't really cry until I got to the funeral. When I saw her and I remembered all the things we went through, you know, and um, it was a really tough, tough funeral to have lost your wife for 60 years. And I will see her again. And a matter of fact, I say uh, today, probably, Ruth is enjoying the company of Maisel and Jerry Falwell and Doug and Laura Lee Oldham. Doug is a singer there, you know, the church. And I said, they're just waiting for me to have coffee with them on breakfast. And so I said, folks, I'm coming. <laughs> so um, th that that was a you know a short short period of time in in general for you. But what? How did you process through that time, Doctor Towns? Um, and not only in the in the months during her her terminal illness, but in the months to follow. Well, um, uh, of course, it was right before Christmas. I had all the family over for Christmas Day, uh, and so we—I—I uh, I give all my my children a big amount of cash money. I give more to my children. I give them money and gifts every year. I think it's important to give to them. And then I decided to go to Myrtle Beach. So we own a third of a condo at Myrtle Beach. And so I went down to Myrtle Beach. I got in the car on um, on the twenty on the twenty fifth day, Christmas Day. Drove down. The twenty sixth was her birthday. She was born on December the twenty sixth. And so okay. I walked around, and I was like, "This place is not the same without her." So I turned around uh, on the twenty seventh and came back home. Hmm. And all of a sudden, you have to you have to live your life. You got things to do. And so I, I'm always grateful for ministry and things that God wants you to do. One more thing. In God's eternal time, between the time that she went into hospice and uh, for some reason, all my appointments didn't, didn't come through. I, I didn't have any place to preach. I was stuck at home mm. for all that time. If I could use the word stuck at home, I was at home and uh, not on the road. And so, um, and so after it, I started going out again. So God even arranged my schedule ahead of time because he knew what was coming. Hmm. Allowed you to grieve in a personal way as you needed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well grieving is one thing. Grieving is uh, you grieve on the inside, uh, tears on the outside, and I, I of course, I cried at the funeral. Um, now, uh, at the Matchett of Liberty University, she's buried on the university, and so up the top you find Jerry Falwell and his wife. And then right below that's a place for all of his children. And right below that is a place for the co-founder and his wife. And so Ruth is buried there. And uh, every once in a while I go over and, um, and I, I don't talk to her, she's dead, but I, 
I go over and I pray and I thank God for her and all the lessons she taught me. So I could not be uh, what I am. I could not have done what I did. I could not have accomplished anything without her complete support at all times. She was a perfect wife in every way. Ruth Jean Towns. Hmm. Well, the, your affection, your love for her is evident uh, on your face as we talk in, in your words, obviously. And so I appreciate you sharing that, that deep moment uh, and that time from your life. Dr. Towns, is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience today in general, something perhaps that I have not asked today? I wrote a book on grandparenting. It's called Great Lessons and Grand Blessings. It's two, two books. One is a regular book, textbook. And I taught it in my Sunday school class. And then if you want to take it and use it as a pastor, there are 12 lessons in here. There are lessons to be taught. There's PowerPoint to be had. And so it's all available. You can find that on Amazon. We will make sure that we get that word out. So thank you for that. How can our listeners pray for you? Obviously, as we said, you're still vital. You're vigorous. You're playing golf every day in your front yard. But what, what can we pray? You're still teaching. Uh, I know you just taught a class. So what, what are some ways that we can teach? I teach five schools uh, one week a year. Okay, I, I teach at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. I was there two weeks ago. I teach a doctoral class there. I teach down at Grace School of Theology in North Houston, Texas. It's an old Dallas seminary type of a school, and they have classes all over the world. And I just signed up. I'll be teaching a class in a couple of weeks by Zoom, and it'll be in uh, Korea. And I teach at that school for them. And then I teach a school in Charlotte, another one in Jacksonville, Florida. And then I teach, I, I have one class over at Liberty University each year now. So I enjoy all my teaching. And so I, I always, I do it for free. I, I say, no, let's, let's, let's send that money that you give me. Let's put it into a good cause. Hmm. So I love serving the Lord. Uh, I love writing books. And um, I'm always working on a book somewhere. Right now I'm doing an encyclopedia of prayer. Everything you can know about prayer. I want to make an encyclopedia of prayer two things. I want to make it a book that you can put on your 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 shelf and read it and study it. But I also want to make it available. It'll go online. And uh, we're going to make this an online thing so that when somebody asks a question, what is prayer walking? They can, when they push in Google, they'll find the answer right there. For you. I have definitions, about 150 definitions of prayer throughout the scriptures. So all different kinds of prayers. And so I'm excited by finishing up that project and serving the Lord. Okay. Well, um, any way, any other ways that we might, our listeners might pray for you, Dr. Towns? I still teach my Sunday school class. It's a pastor's Bible class at Thomas Lord Baptist Church. I've been teaching that uh, since 1986. And um, I've got some old folks in my class, and hmm. I'm old. And so we have some young people in my class. We have some very young people. So I really enjoy my class. I really enjoy, I enjoy life. I enjoy what God has given me. And, uh, and I have a, a, an extensive prayer ministry. I still pray for my people. And I pray for people all over the world. Well, I appreciate your time today very much, sir. Your, your generosity uh, towards this audience is evident and, and throughout your ministry, your generosity has been evident. So um, again, I, I thank you. And I hope our listeners will have gotten some, some good value out of listening to your wisdom today. Let me, let me end up by giving you my life verse. Okay. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. Faithful is he, God, who calls you. He also will do what he's called you to do if you will just respond and obey. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. First Thessalonians 5.24. Well, thank you. That's a great way to end. Thank you for joining us for this interview today. The Baptist Home has provided Christ-like care to the aging since 1913. To learn more about the biblically informed resources and solutions provided by the Baptist Home, go to www.thebaptisthome, that's all one word, .org. Again, www.thebaptisthome.org. You will find links to previous podcasts, a growing number of church resources, and detailed information about residential and long-term care communities. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Andy Brams, asking you to be a voice for the aging.